Welcome to If You Love This Planet. I'm Dr. Helen Caldicott, and in this program we talk about the greatest medical and environmental threats to all life, such as nuclear weapons and nuclear power, global warming, ozone depletion, toxic pollution, deforestation, and many other social and political issues that relate to global well-being. So if you love this planet, keep listening. Welcome to If You Love This Planet. My special guest today is Wayne Getz, a professor in the Department of Environmental Science, Policy and Management at the University of California in Berkeley. He describes the research that takes place in his lab as this. Students and postdoctoral students in the lab work on a broad range of theoretical and applied questions in population biology and behaviour with application to problems in epidemiology and conservation and wildlife biology, particularly in Africa. Wayne Getz joins me now uh, and I welcome you to the program. Thank you, Helen. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Well, I was inspired uh, to do this program because I read of a report in the recent Nature magazine um, by a group of scientists, and you are one, scientists from five yes. nations led by the University of California Berkeley biologist Anthony Barnofsky um, to report that the Earth is in a tipping point in climate change that will lead to increasingly rapid and irreversible destruction of the global environment unless its forces are controlled by concerted international action. Uh, and that's what this group of international scientists said. And Barnofsky says the science tells us that we're heading toward major changes in the biosphere. And given all the pressures we're putting on the world, if we do nothing different, I believe we're looking at a time scale of a century or even a few decades for a tipping point to arrive. Would you like to enlarge upon that, Wayne Getz, please? Yes, thank you. Well, I think firstly we have to understand uh, what we mean by a tipping point and by different scales in both time and space. So one can get tipping points where you pass a point in time and uh, change happens that is generally very difficult to reverse and sometimes irreversible. And an example of this may be extinction of a species. Um, the scale of extinction of species is not, it's a loss for the whole planet, but that's usually taking place within a particular ecosystem. So it may be a loss of, the, of a species in the Amazon forest, and this is not going to affect ecosystems elsewhere. But there are tipping points at different scales. And um, I think that what has happened over the last hundred years is that there have been major changes in the world's atmospheric uh, composition in um, land use configurations, the state of ecosystems, and so on. And from our experience with dynamical systems theory, we know that as systems change dramatically, so they can go to new states. And in these new states, it may not be easy to reverse the system and get back to where you came from, because there are certain processes that are somewhat irreversible. It's like uh, 
if a glass falls off a table and smashes, uh, you can't put the glass together because um, it's an irreversible process, the breaking of that glass. And to some extent, some of the changes we're experiencing are irreversible at short time scales. So loss of species is something that we can't just go back and reconstruct that easily. Obviously, the Earth has an ability to heal itself, and over millions of years, new species will evolve. So what becomes very important is understanding time scales for um, the rates at which change are happening. And if we look at uh, mass extinctions and changes, glacial cycles, and all these sorts of things that have been going on in the past, what is important to understand is not that change happens, but that change can happen slowly or rapidly. And if change happens very rapidly, then we don't have sufficient time to take the remedial actions that we need to avoid certain catastrophes, and I think one of the worst catastrophes we can have uh, would be mass starvation and hundreds of millions of people dying because of um, loss of uh, ability to produce agricultural products, uh, changes to climate patterns, uh, catastrophes from hurricanes and that sort of thing. So a tipping point is a point that we would pass that would be irreversible, at least on a short time scale. Well, can you give us some examples then of how mass starvation might occur um, and also the time frame for that, as you have all the scientists looked at this very closely how imminent is that, and how might that occur, Wayne Getz? Well, again, it's a, it's a question of how rapidly things happen and whether there's a will to do something about it. So we've already seen situations in Africa where people do starve and where the world has not really been effective enough in... Um, being able to remediate what's happening. And so you as a pediatrician, for example, know very well how many avoidable deaths there are of young children in Africa because of inadequate nutrition and inadequate care. Yes. Um, so it's, you know, it, it's not a question of being alarmist, and it's not like, uh, you know, we, we're going to be... Um, hit by some kind of object from outer space and have a huge explosion. I guess the worst thing that can happen, and this is something that you know much more about than I do, is that if we had some kind of nuclear holocaust. So we're not talking about things happening that fast. Mm. But if you, if you look at the world around us, we see all the symptoms of problems. It's like if a patient came in to you and said, I had a temperature of 103 degrees, their blood pressure was 180 over 20, and uh, they had a high heartbeat rate of 120, and they were covered all over in a rash. You know, what would you think? You'd think this person really needs treatment. Yep. Well, in a sense, that's where our world is. Um, we have a raised temperature. We have, um, we're covered all over in rashes. 43% of natural wild ecosystems now have been transferred 
through land use change into agricultural lands and urban lands. Some of them are attractive, some of them are awful. But as far as the world's ecosystems and climate systems are concerned, this is a a rather large kind of rash for the Earth to have. And so when we look at the Earth, we say we could be heading for trouble. And this is what our paper is actually about. It's saying that uh, a lot of symptoms are there, and yet we're sending the patient back out to work. We're saying you're not really that sick. Uh, We don't need to worry too much about you. And what our paper does is says, says, you know, let's start worrying about this particular patient and beginning to do the sorts of things that we need to do to make sure that the patient doesn't get worse. It clearly, it's very hard to cure the patient, and it's not necessary that you have to sort of get rid of all the rashes in order to cure the patient. But it's that we want to avoid the situation where in some decades from now, um, various kinds of events, whether it's a huge wildfire event that are much larger than any of the wildfires that we've seen today, sweep across whole countries, or whether it's some kind of um, epidemic process and the world is stretched and can't respond effectively. I mean, what's going to happen is that the richest 80% of people in the world will probably be all right, but the poorest 20% are really going to suffer and it's going to be awful for them. Yeah, but the problem is many of them are in developing countries like Africa. We might see them a little bit on television But on the whole, it's fairly easy to practice denial and not really look at those problems. It's when the climate changes start affecting us. For instance, in Perth in Western Australia, in the last, I don't know, five days, they've had three major cyclones with winds of 150, 130 kilometres an hour. This is unheard of. And these are the climate catastrophes that were predicted so long ago, like even in 1992, and I wrote my book about it, If You Love This Planet. Yet it's yes. ongoing. It's on, And what you said, I think, Wayne, gets um, about people ignoring it and sending the patient out covered with a rash, um, high temperature, tachycardia, the whole thing, and not worrying about it is true. So therefore, you as scientists must have analysed why this is going on and what should be done in an acute fashion to 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 help to save this patient, which happens to be the planet. Yeah. So what scientists are reasonably good at at the moment are things like measuring the temperature of the patient. So, for example, on Monolao Volcano in the Hawaiian Islands, Uh, For the last 50 or 60 years, they've been measuring CO2 concentrations, and we've seen a steady increase in the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere, particularly over the last 50 years. But over the last um, 150 years, we've seen a 30 to 40 percent increase in CO2 levels, and we know this has dramatic effect on the climate. We also can measure the weather, and we know the temperature is going up. We can measure the extent of ice caps and um, these sorts of things, like the ice on top of Mount Kilimanjaro is melting. And when it's gone, this is going to have dire consequences for um, 
rivers that are fed by the melting ice during the summer season. So we can we can measure all these things effectively. Um, and we also know that as the system moves out from the area where it's been, let's say, for the last several thousand years, to an area of climate change where the climate's a lot warmer, one of the things that is important is not only that the temperature increases, but that variability in climatic events increases. So one of the things scientists are trying to do is use methods not only to look at rates of change of temperature, but also the frequency of unusual events and whether that frequency is going up. Mm -hmm. And as you mentioned, these cyclones um, in Perth seem to suggest that uh, the frequency of cyclones is going up in that part of the world. We're also seeing the the frequency of tropical storms and hurricanes in um, the United States off the Atlantic coast seems to be increasing. So these are all indications that the patient is not well. Now, now we we know some of the things that are causing the problem. We know that it's greenhouse gas emissions. We know that land use change um, has taken place and that we're losing a lot of biodiversity. We know that we are polluting the atmosphere, that we are polluting our water, and we can measure heavy metals in the sea, heavy metals in fish populations. We can measure all these things. But um, scientists are only one component of a greater society, and in fact, scientists have limited ability to work in the political arena and be effective there. Why? I don't understand that. Why? You know, because I'm a scientist too, I suppose, as a paediatrician. I'm pretty highly qualified as a physician. And I have worked in the political arena because I know that you can only practice preventive medicine through the political process. In other words, smallpox was eradicated because we brought in the politicians and we immunized everyone on earth, you know. So therefore... So I I get very frustrated, Wayne gets, with scientists who stay in their labs. They're very cautious. They don't want to step out of their comfort zones. They might lose their funding and their grants, you know, if they extrapolate too far. But it seems to me in this paper what you have all done for the Rio 20 plus 20 conference is extrapolate from your scientific data and findings to the future. And therefore it seems imperative that you educate and bring in the political structure because most politicians don't understand science. Yeah, so so that's part of the problem. But what I mean by scientists not wanting to do things, well, firstly, scientists are not an extraordinary group in terms of being activists compared to the general population. So among scientists, there definitely are groups of people who've been very effective in various debates and who have made a big impact. But what I mean by by scientists not getting involved is that very few scientists actually stand for Congress, become senators, mm. uh, become congressmen, become sci- become presidents even. You know, being in the political career of somebody, it seems to attract people who've been in the law or people who have been in certain fields. Um, business, money makers, business. Yes, money, money, money makers, yes. So, and, and scientists, 
by and large, go into science because they're interested in doing science and not doing politics. And even if they get into politics, not all of them would be that effective. We obviously need a better kind of dialogue between scientists and politicians, and we need to set it up. But most of the time, politicians are too busy uh, being concerned about other sorts of things so that in terms of rhetoric that goes on in the United States, there are a lot of leading politicians, particularly in one of the parties, that, who are willing to even say that scientists are cooking up the data in order to sort of alarm people and get more funding. So, you know, with this kind of rhetoric going on, it's very difficult for sane um, ideas and, and dialogue and discussion to come through. Most people aren't interested in that. If you look at the press, I'm, I'm extraordinarily disappointed in journalism in the United States and probably elsewhere in the world, but I'm more familiar with it now. I think more and more journalists are just looking for sensationalist stories that will get the viewers, and they're not really interested in doing the in-depth things. Now, that's not to say that there aren't programs the wonderful programs on PBS, NOVA, and others where you get incredible information. But then again, most of the public are not even interested in watching this. So I think we have a, a problem with the public at large not being interested. And I think it all goes back to education. Mm. The best place to, to, to be able to start a process of cultural change is with young people. So if you teach young people about recycling and the importance of recycling, they get it. You know, kids can be fabulous in that way. But by the time they leave high school and they're going to college, they're concerned about other things. And if they haven't got an adequate edu education, then we're in big trouble because they're not interested anymore. I don't know if that sounds... Yes, no, I think, I think this is important. And I think we're trying to analyze the etiology or cause of the disease that's impacting the planet. And I think we need to move on from what you've just said too to the influence of corporations who do these really wicked things. And I do mean wicked. And like Exxon, yes. who's spending hundreds of millions of dollars injecting doubt into the into the global warming debate. And, and, and therefore, they have access to the media. They're the ones that get on Fox et al., and, and yes. tell lies to people. And I have reached the conclusion, Wayne Getz, that I don't believe in freedom of speech when it comes to talking about the diseases impacting the planet and if, if most life species on Earth have a future. I don't believe in Rush Limbaugh being able to tell lies all the time or, or Roger Ailes or any of them because it's so important. I mean, if I told lies in my practice of medicine, I would be either damaging or killing my patients, and I would be deregistered. Similarly, with you, if you told lies. Um, so there's a, a degree of ethics that is imperative, and I think that has to apply to the media too. What, what would be your commentary on that as a scientist? Well, I agree with you that we have a huge problem and that corporations, by and large, are driven by people who, in their motive to make money at all costs, actually become very destructive to our society. And 
What really brought this home most recently to me is Proposition 29 in California, which was about an extra dollar tax on um, cigarettes. Um, and if I, I think some polls were taken a couple of months ago, and Proposition 29 was, uh, most of California was for Proposition 29 overwhelmingly. And then we had this blitz advertising campaign. Um, every, you know, you couldn't switch on the television and not see one of these advertisements from uh, groups against Proposition 29. But the real money came from R.J. Reynolds and the cigarette yep. uh, manufacturers. The tobacco but it's cans. kind of hidden, and people don't know this because they have all these front uh, organizations like uh, Californians for Tax Equity or Californians for Tax Reform or Californians for Cancer Research. And oh. an organization like Californians for Cancer Research could be get. I don't know if there's such an organization. I'm just giving you examples. Yeah, yeah. They'll be getting money from various sources, and you really go back and you say, where's this money coming from? And it's coming from R.J. Reynolds in the end. Yeah. And so they completely manipulated the, um, the, 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 the whole campaign. And in the end, Californians, um, it was narrowly defeated, and so they actually won. And it was a case where they outspent their opponents, I don't know, probably by an order of magnitude. Uh, and so big money does win in the end. And one of the most important things that we can teach our kids in school is uh, media literacy, the ability to look at an yeah. ad and say, what is going on? Who's behind it? What does it mean? What's the truth? What's the nonsense? What are the lies? Yes, and, and it's important to come back to the, the mere fact that, in fact, the public own the airwaves, and they've been co-opted by corporations to make money no matter what. And I do think, yes. I think what we're debating, Wayne Getz, is a very important point, that scientists produce the data, as you've just said, and we'll get back to that in a minute. But in order to fix, fix it and cure the patient, we've got to look at these other dynamics. And I think that scientists do really need to step out of their comfort zones and, and analyse with their brilliance and their powers of critical thinking that we've all been taught about what is happening, why is it happening, and what are we going to do about it? And, you know, if we got together as a group, I'm sure we could be very powerful. Yes. Well, yeah, so I think uh, we, we can look at certain cases and we can say, you know, in the 1960s and early 70s, Americans living in big cities like L.A., could see that they had a huge problem with air pollution and people were suffering. And because of that, and actually also because of people like President Nixon um, uh, uh, bringing on the, the EPA, starting the EPA, and um, the EPA setting standards and everybody being motivated because it affects them directly. So the only way that you can actually motivate, I guess, the general public is you have to affect them directly. Mm -hmm. And if you look at some of the things that are going on with uh, global warming and land use changes and loss of diversity, most people who live in cities and urban areas 
are not experiencing this and don't realize mm. that at some point there's going to be a dramatic effect, but they can't see it coming. And this is the problem. And then when scientists try to say, like we're saying in this paper, that we believe something is coming soon because we know that when systems are altered to the extent that we have now altered our Earth ecosystem, dramatic things happen. People don't believe it until it really begins to happen. Until and then by that time... Um, it's too late. It's, it's too late to do many... Well, it's never too late to... Um, I mean, one, one always needs to take action. But we get ourselves into situations where, in a sense, if we had acted decades earlier, we would have been much better off. Yeah. Talk about, Wayne Getz, talk about the tipping points. I mean, I know you've gone through a lot in this article in Nature magazine um, but, yeah. or Nature Journal. Talk about the tipping points that you all came up with, what they mean and how they would happen and what would happen. Okay, well, um, as I started off earlier, I talked about um, problems with uh, fragmentation of wildlands and um, what happens is that when we begin, when we go into an area like uh, parts of Africa and uh, we start to develop Africa, and so what we do is we say we're going to put aside areas for natural reserves. If these areas are too small and they're not connected to other natural reserves, then one of the tipping points that happens will be extinction of species. Now, a lot of people, I don't know how they feel about losing some of the charismatic species that we know. Um, there's some very beautiful antelope out there that are highly endangered that um, could, would soon disappear, and most people wouldn't really care about that. So where it becomes important is where we begin to lose ecosystem function. And as we lose biodiversity and the ecosystems we have become simplified in terms of their biological complexity, they become more susceptible to disease. And one of the things that we've seen now, for example, is that um, honeybees got this mysterious disease over the past several years, and it affected the populations, and it affected their ability to pollinate crops. Now, you might say, okay, what's the consequence of that? Well, the consequence of that is that a lot of food products, fruits, vegetables, other kinds of things that require pollination will go up dramatically in price. Now, what is the, knock the knockover effect of that happening? I mean, it's, it's, it's rather complicated and hard to predict. So there again, if you told people this was going to happen, they might not get too excited about it and not really care about it. But, of course, the most important tipping point that I can think of is the one that relates to ocean currents and ocean flow patterns. And scientists have done some work, and they've shown that as the ice caps melt, because of um, the in the, uh, a lot of fresh water now um, coming into the oceans, in the north, and the salt levels go down, the salt levels and these salt gradients are things that drive ocean currents. And we have ocean current patterns that if they switch, 
We have no way of turning them back. Mm. We can't turn the clock on that one. And what that is going to happen is it's going to it's going to perturb our 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 whole um, climate system, so that areas like Europe might become much colder than they are. Areas now that are rich, fertile country could become deserts. Areas now that um, are cold tundra could actually become productive agricultural areas. It's not that we couldn't, as humans, live on a different earth that had different patterns, but it's that if the changes happen too fast, we can't adapt sufficiently so that everybody can make it. You know, it's like um, if, if a tragedy is happening, we all have to get off a boat and the boat is going down and there are only so many lifeboats. Some people will make it off and some people won't make it. And again, the people who won't make it are probably the people who have least influence and power in the society. They're the poorest people. And so, again, we don't care too much about that. Um, a lot of rich people, a lot of people who have power, really don't, don't seem to, this doesn't seem to be part of what makes them uh, do different things and what makes them decide on different uh, kinds of policies. They seem to, to not really care very much about what's going on. They may pay some lip service, but they're not really mm. sincerely interested in in the fact that there are millions of children in Africa today that don't live past the age of two or four because of disease, because of nutrition, because of clean water, needs for clean water. So, um, you know, I don't know what to say. I mean, I, I, I don't know how to solve the world's problems. I can, as a scientist, I only know from the point of view of an ecologist and a population biologist that the patient does have a temperature and that uh, the patient has rashes all over its body. And that I'm looking around and saying, okay, where are our politician doctors showing some concern about this? And most of them are not concerned. No. So, you know, obviously you've done much more to address political issues from the perspective of scientists than I ever have. So... I can't advise you here because you know better than I what all the difficulties are that uh, that stand in the way of us solving this problem. I'm interviewing Wayne Getz, a professor in the Department of Environmental Science, Policy and Management at the University of California at Berkeley. You know, Wayne, I was just at a conference in Freiburg, Germany, where environmental laureates attended from, I think, about 56 countries. And the um, Energy International Energy Agency, the, the chief of that organisation, stood up and said the predictions now are that by the middle of the century it's going to be three degrees centigrade hotter and by the yeah. end of the century it's going to be six degrees centigrade hotter and I thought, oh my God, that is antithetical to life. We won't survive. We won't survive those temperatures because then you get the gradients, you know, you get the extremely yeah. hot days... But we, uh, hum, the human race can't survive at temperatures uh, at an average of six degrees uh, centigrade hotter. Wouldn't you agree? Um, well, I would say that uh, some of us can survive. I mean, we can live in the Antarctic and we can live in the desert, but it takes a lot of resources. 
But 7 billion people can't survive. Well, 9 billion or maybe 14 billion is your paper now. Oh, yeah. So by the time there, we're talking about 9. So 9 billion people can't survive. So who are the people? This is, you know, I come back to this point all the time. It's, I will survive because I live in a well-developed society and I have resources. You will survive. But I'll be dead by then. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Uh, yeah, I'm also uh, sort of uh, not so young anymore. But um, my grandchildren are likely to survive. And uh, as I said, uh, it, it depends at the rate at which things happen. So, for example, if you sa- if standing on the edge of a beach and mm. a tsunami hits, mm. it doesn't matter how much money you have, yeah. it can take you away. And also, the other thing that is a great equalizer is um, infectious disease, like influenza. And malaria. So it doesn't matter how wealthy you are, you can get influenza, and it can kill you if it's uh, one of these bad strains like the Spanish flu from 1918. But if it's other sorts of catastrophes, like um, a rapid change of an ecosystem from uh, where the temperature does go up and, uh, you know, you need air conditioning now where you never needed air conditioning before and you need to import your food from further away and you need to pay more money to get your food and you need clean water, but because you're wealthy, you can get this clean water. Um there are going to be a billion people who will be just fine and maybe a couple billion more who will be okay. But then there will be billions of people too who are not going to make it. Um, And so it depends on how rapidly things change and whether there's a political will for humans as a community of, um, as a world community to solve this problem together or whether we become very selfish and break up into our small groups and do what humans basically have been doing throughout history, and that's fighting one another for resources and killing each other for them. Tribalism. Tribalism, yeah. So tribalism, you know, the base, the more base human instincts will come out, tribalism will prevail, and um, those people who are rich and powerful will be able to make it. And those people who don't have access to wealth will be in trouble. Well, the Pentagon is already planning for this, for global warming, and and writing extensive papers about what they're going to do in terms of weapons and killing people to maintain America's standard of living. And on that note, as you talked, I'm reminded of ecological refugees. You know, you said maybe a billion will survive out of seven or nine billion or whatever, or, you know, 14 billion... But, however, these people are going to be swamped by ecological refugees arriving in whatever form they will and taking over societies. I mean, you could almost see reversion to primitivism even in, in the most wealthy. I mean, people are going yeah. to be desperate, desperate. That is true. And, you know, uh, some of our politicians have been talking about the fences that need to be put up. And at that point in time... 20 or 30 foot fences will go up and they'll be patrolled. Uh, this is how societies behave. We've seen it before. Um, you know, it seems like uh, 
when humans get into situations where they feel um, their own lives are at stake and they can be, they become desperate, we know we are capable of doing anything, including killing others. That's right. So we've seen this throughout history. Uh, you know, I just can't understand what happened on the battlefields during the First World War and the brutality of regimes like the Nazi regime in the Second World War. How, how do people do this? How did they behave mm. like this? How do they mm. objectify the people that they hate and are willing to just uh, devalue their lives to the point where they don't care about them and they're worth nothing to these other people? But yet humans are capable of this behavior. And I think if you look across all societies, you see that all societies have human beings to some degree or other capable of this kind of behavior. So the only hope for us as a, is to maintain the structures of civilization that help humans behave in what we like to think of as our best attributes, our humanity. And there are people with great humanity who will not behave like this. But we have a spectrum of behaviors in our society, and those who are willing to kill in times like this are those who, are, who win, because those who are not willing to kill will get killed by those who are willing to kill. True, true. But also, you can look back in history and see altruistic leaders arising like Gandhi and like Martin Luther King and others who yes. inspire the very goodness in people and in millions of people. And I know that because I've kind of done that myself, in fact. I shouldn't say that, but I yes. have. And yes. and we have stopped slavery. I mean, it is occurring in certain parts of the world, but on the whole, we stopped it. Uh, and capital punishment, well, many countries have stopped. Ca I mean, we're able actually to civilize ourselves and move on, but we need a leader who's inspirational, yeah. who people yeah. will follow, and, and suddenly the goodness in their souls hypertrophies, if you will. Um, or the alternative is a Hitler will arise yeah. and appeal to the very base baseness of our souls, and people will yeah. respond to that. Well, I certainly believe that incredible characters like Gandhi and like Mandela have been able to make such an incredible difference. So, uh, you know, I think Mandela was able to save South Africa from a terrible bloodbath. And uh, yeah, I've been intimately associated with that because I was born in South Africa and I lived there for the first 30 years of my life. And I didn't believe that the transition could be as peaceful as it mm, was. Yes. And Gandhi, despite everything, still could not prevent um, Pakistan from forming. Mm. And when we look at Pakistan today with nuclear weapons, as you know, and India also with nuclear weapons, and these two countries kind of looking at each other and wondering what the future is, you see that despite people like Gandhi, we still haven't learned the most important lessons as a society. Yeah, I know. Well, then, um, Wayne, gets to get back to something else that interests me is, is Africa. I know that now China and South Korea in particular are buying up huge, huge tracts of land 
in Africa so that they'll be able to feed their people in the future and inevitably they must be destroying ecosystems at a huge rate. Would you like to talk about that? Well, I'm not an expert in this area. I do travel around and so I do pick up some information. And I know that China are very interested in um, various kinds of uh, mineral resources. And so they are in places like Zambia and Zimbabwe and other parts of Africa where resources are available. Um, I think to some extent Africa is tired of the West and uh, its form of paternalistic colonization that went on for 200 years. Um, And so when they look at China, they don't necessarily say this is going to be worse for us. Uh, But the problem is that in the end, money corrupts, Mm. and the kind of leaders that come up are those who are corrupted by the money and don't care about the people. I think that South Africa itself is a very interesting case because although there's a lot of corruption in South Africa and politicians will also take money and take bribes and so on, South Africa may have passed also a tipping point in the sense of having a society where the judiciary is sufficiently, has a long enough tradition and functions in... um, a way that can actually protect society ultimately from the kind of despotism that you get that you have in Zimbabwe. So I'm actually optimistic about South Africa because I feel as a society, if you look at its civil structures and its institutions, they are sufficiently well developed so that to some extent the society is protected. It's like in the United States, without our constitution, we have leaders who would have turned this into a totalitarian regime, and that protected us. The Constitution protects us. South Africa has a Constitution, and I think it has a sufficiently mature judicial system and system of um, civil institutions that somehow this can enable the society to be able to resist the kind of despotism that we see in other parts of Africa. Um, But the Chinese are doing... I mean, the United States has always done what's best for the United States, and the Chinese (laughs) are doing what's best for the Chinese. Uh, So why should we expect anything different from them? Okay, so here's a good question for you, Professor Wayne Getz. Okay. Um, If you were President of the United States, what would you do right now? knowing what you know. Well, am I allowed to do something with domestic policy? You can do anything you want. I'm giving you carte blanche. I would institute a one-payer health care system. That would be the first thing I would do. You mean free health care? Yeah, free health, like the British system, yes. something like that. Or the Australian in system. Which I would get rid of all insurance companies, and I think the British have shown us that government can deliver health care to everybody in an adequate way. And if you want to have auxiliary private health care for people who feel like they've got the money to spend and they want something different, that's fine too. But that's the first thing I'd do. I'd, and I would re, uh, overhaul the educational structure. I don't know how to do this, but I would consult 
the best minds in the country on education and find a way to do something about education. Because I believe universal health care is a basic human right in the 21st century, and education is the only way that a good education that countries can build a future for themselves. Now, in terms of foreign policy, that's very complicated. I mean, I just happen to believe that George Bush got us into unwinnable wars, that we should never have gone into Iraq. It's the biggest disaster that's ever happened to this country. But how do you reverse that? So there's a tipping point for you. Um, You know, Colin Powell said, and very wisely, with regard to the first Iraq war, we don't want to go to Baghdad because... You know, if you break it, you own it. We broke Iraq. Now we own it. So what do you do? Well, you own the oil too, don't forget. Yes. Well, you know, um, I think that we have to wean American society off oil. Uh, It takes a while, but we're not doing nearly enough to do that. I think that we have to invest in alternative energy sources, that um, we need to live more sustainably. I do all the kinds of things that would not get me a second term, that would get me kicked out of the office as rapidly as possible. People would hate it if I were president. No, but so you know, I, you know, you might become a true leader, and although you might think you'll be hated, people might suddenly think, "Thank God, we've at last got a leader like Obama." You know, change, change. Yeah, we can believe yeah. in, and he didn't bloody do yeah. it. So. If yeah. someone really did do that and say, look, I don't care if I'm I'm not re-elected for the second term. I'm yeah. in this right. to try and save the planet, you know, like you've just yeah. talked about. I, I agree with you. I think if Obama had been less concerned about being re-elected and more concerned about implementing his promises, that actually he would have got a lot of respect for it and may not have got re-elected, but uh, history would have a very different view of him. I I have um, a lot of respect for Jimmy Carter. He told, um, I mean, he told America some truth, and they didn't like it. Mm. They didn't like the fact that he told them that they should turn the air conditioning down to 68 and keep it on, you know, the heating on at 72 and so on, and that uh, it's a big problem for us. And they thought, we better get rid of this guy. He's got bad news for us. That's what's happening here. Give Americans bad news. They don't want to. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. You've got to pursue happiness and live at the same temperature yeah. the whole year like a jello. So, you you know, I mean, you know, yeah. I, when I'm in New York in the summer, I go into a theatre and I freeze. It's like walking to a refrigerator. And then in the winter you go into these office buildings and it's so hot you have to strip. I mean, it's anyway. But what I was really asking you is if you were president – How would you save the planet? How would you save the planet? Like right now, you're faced with all these challenges and prognostications that you and your wonderful colleagues have produced. What would you do to save the planet on an urgency basis? So firstly, I'm not, I don't see it that it's saving the planet. The planet's going to be fine a million years from now, no matter what we do. If we mess it up, the planet has, a way of healing itself. Yeah. So what am I going to do to prevent a catastrophe for humankind in the next century where that catastrophe means billions of people at risk for food and health 
and hundreds of millions of them dying. And other species. And other species, yeah. Well, some people say, you know, that's incidental. We've got to worry about ourselves first. I mean, uh, it's, 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 I think this, one of the ways to justify other species to humans is to say that we need other species to have healthy ecosystems, mm. and we need healthy ecosystems for a healthy world. And in that way, you may be able to convince everybody that conserving biodiversity is important. I think that um, we're on a path, and it's very, you know, it's like when you get into one of these huge tankers, and uh, you're the captain at the bridge, and you want to turn it around. You can't turn it around on a dime. You have to, it takes many miles to turn it around, slow it around. There's a huge momentum behind it. And one of the things that we have a huge momentum in is the fact that this CO2 balance of the Earth has been perturbed to the point that if we wanted to bring it back to where it was, say, 300 years ago, and we started to implement changes right now so that we began to reverse the rate at which CO2s are being put into the environment, it could take us a 1,000 years to get there. So there are time constants involved. So this is not what's important. I mean, it's important that we start, that we recognize the problem, that we start to make um, changes. But what also is very important is that we recognize that we're all in the same lifeboat and we have to work together. So one of the most important things to do is how do you motivate all of humanity to work together to address the problems as they come up. So, for example, these cyclones that you talked about, it doesn't matter what we do over the next 10 years, we're not going to turn that off. We're going to be seeing this for maybe the next 100 years. We're going to be seeing changes in the climate. We're going to be seeing the warming of areas. We're going to see the rise of the sea. We're not going to be able to... We can slow that down and ultimately turn it around. But there is going to be inundation of lowlands. So what we, be able, what we need to be able to do is to all work together so that everybody can kind of weather the storm together that is coming. So we do have a coming storm. Some of us are more at risk than others. But if we're all working together to make sure that we minimize the impact on the people who are going to be affected the most, that's really what we have to be able to do. So I've got two last questions because we're just about running out of time. Wayne Getz, um, what influence do you think your paper uh, in Nature will have at the Rio Plus 20 conference on June the 22nd? And number two, there's a man called Richard Lindzen, who's a climate scientist at MIT, who's been a vociferous sceptic on the urgency of global warming. He called the warning by Banofsky and you, your, his colleagues, highly implausible. Would you just like yeah. to um, address those two issues? Okay, so the effect of our paper, um, I think that a single, you know, it's like voting. See, you know, you go and vote and you say, what's the value of my vote? Well, as an individual, almost nothing. It takes a group of people and it takes sort of a, a movement. 
So our paper is part of one of several papers, hopefully in the future many papers, that will be talking about this problem. Papers like this may encourage uh, politicians to decide that we need to put more money into research in this area. Mm. So as a, pay, as, a, as a piece on its own, it has very little effect. As part of a bigger picture, it begins to be cumulative. So the effect is cumulative but small. Others have to join us, and um, it has to, it's, it's, it's kind of the perception of what's happening uh, comes slowly, and it comes through us, um, you know, the group of authors on this particular paper getting together and trying to brainstorm the problems and think about them. Um, and uh, so let's get on to this MIT scientist who uh, says that what we're saying is highly implausible. Well, firstly, I'm not sure what he's saying is implausible. I think he's going to agree that CO2 levels have been rising. If he's any kind of scientist uh, worth his salt, he's going to agree that greenhouse gases trap energy. He's going to agree that the temperature is going up. He's got to agree that there's land use change taking place and that the, the percentage of wildlands covering our earth is um, getting smaller and smaller and more fragmented. And if he knows anything about network theory, he would know that as nodes of networks get disconnected, you get, a, you get to a point where the web breaks up and disintegrates. So all of these things he's got to agree with. So I'm not sure what, it, what he's not agreeing to. Maybe he thinks we're alarmist in saying that, look, guys, this is a huge problem. We better think about it. Well, what I he, don't know. What he says is their population predictions are extremely unlikely and their climate predictions are always hypothetical. Okay. Well, population predictions, you know, we're already at 7 billion and we already have hundreds of millions, actually billions of people at risk. We, still ha we already have food security problems. We already have epidemics. So uh, we have a population problem right now. Now, that's not to say that 7 billion people can't live on the earth, but 7 billion people in order to live on the earth, we need to be much smarter about how we use the earth's resources. Mm. So, 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 so that's clear. So, um, what, what is the other climate thing you mentioned? That he, his, your climate predictions are always hypothetical. Yes, he's right. Uh, this is hypothetical. Um, so, what is he offering in the way of hypothetical? If his hypothetical scenario is that we're fine, let's keep our head in the sand. Um, I don't call that any kind of science either. Well, he, so says, the question he is, says no one thinks that something terrible will happen in anything like the future they see. Well, what's your definition of terrible? Uh, yes. 10 million people dying, 100 million people dying, yes. a billion people dying. Yes. Uh, it's clear that there will be hundreds of millions of people ultimately who will be affected by this and who will be threatened with starvation if we don't adapt to what's happening. I mean, what is clear is that the climate is changing. Mm. And he's right that if humans are smart, 
And if we can work together, that we can do much more and we can minimize the effect and that there won't be any major catastrophes uh, to the extent where you have hundreds of millions of people being threatened because of starvation. But if you have a look at the way we behave as a society and the politics, you can't be optimistic. So if we're not waving this flag, then we're in big trouble because we do need to be better. We, need, we, we do need to do things better as a society collectively in order to avoid tragedy. Yes. And uh, he sounds like somebody who's just not concerned about most of humanity. <laughs> I think you're probably right. Well, on that optimistic and pessimistic note, we've reached the end of our time, Professor Wayne Getz. And I thank you very much for a very erudite discussion of the problems that are facing us all right now. Um, and I do wish, your, wish you luck uh, with your paper in Rio and to stimulate governments to fund you and do further work. And I appreciate myself what you are doing. And thank you very much. Well, thank you very much. And I really appreciate having this opportunity to talk to you. And it's been a, a privilege and a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Professor Getz. My guest today on If You Love This Planet was Professor Wayne Getz, uh, professor in the Department of Environmental Science, Policy and Management at the University of California, Berkeley. It's been a very erudite discussion, um, something that we all should be thinking about and talking about at our dinner tables every night and even thinking about when we wake up first thing in the morning. I'm sure we can do a lot to reverse these terrible things that are upon us. It just takes a knowledge, effort, commitment and I guess if you love this planet. Thanks for listening today, and we'll be back again with you next week with another fascinating program. Bye for now. You've been listening to If You Love This Planet with Dr. Helen Caldicott. This program is broadcast on community radio across the United States, including our host station, KPFT Pacifica, Houston, Texas. This program is produced and engineered by Jazz Williams, co-produced by Scott Powell, and our publicity and outreach are coordinated by Amanda Bellerby. To listen to previous shows or to make a donation, go to our website, if you love this planet.org.